Father, thank you for voices and strings and the way notes leap off a page and into our brain and then mix with the Spirit of God in our heart and produces this white, hot, joyful worship. Sin-eradicating, guilt-relieving, soul-strengthening worship. Father, thank you for the increase in joy that's occurred in just these first 20 minutes. By the help of the Holy Spirit through the church, through fellow believers, sisters and brothers beside us, around us, behind us, in front of us, singing. And Lord, thank you for those who are watching by way of the web. Lord, thank you they have a chance to worship in their home. Thank you for technology, the wonderful world, God, of technology when it's used for such holy purposes. God, and we believe that uh, your church around the world in some places is watching us. We thank you for our Christians whom we don't know personally, but are connected with by way of ministry and our giving and our praying, our going, and even in their viewing today. We love the church universal. We pray for suffering brothers and sisters, poor pastors, persecuted members, Oh, how we pray, God, you'd keep them faithful. Lord, we pray all of us, for all of us, you'd keep us faithful. I pray today, God, our eyes would not be on ourselves. Our eyes would not be on ourselves, but we would regain our joy by looking at the magnificence of Messiah. God, bless my little tiny black letters on these white pages. They are so powerless. Unless you, O oh God, now answer the prayers of your people, that when my mouth is opened, I would speak the words of the living God. Would you please, by the power of the Holy Spirit, cause that to happen, that we would see God and love him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It is such a privilege to teach the Bible but there are times in life where the privilege is indescribably joyful. It's simply better. And for me, it's normally because I come across a unique passage of Scripture that uniquely fans the flame of my own love for God because my soul is shocked with, with what I'm reading. And that certainly is going to happen today in the book of Zechariah chapter 3. If you don't know who he is, I can bring you up to speed very quickly. He's a prophet sent by God to encourage people who are returning to their homeland after they had been exiled to live under a foreign king in a foreign territory 900 miles away for 70 years, and now they come back home. You would think the return home would be a joyful occasion, but it, it really wasn't. Because even though they were back in their homeland, their life was so battered, they sort of felt like second-class citizens. They didn't feel like it, it used to feel. They were reminded when they saw the destruction, our mistakes caused this city to be leveled to the ground. It's sort of like they, they made it on the airplane, but barely. They, they, they're, they're, not, they're not flying first-class they're not flying business. They're not flying premium economy. They're flying not just economy, but the last row next to the bathroom. They're barely in the kingdom of God in 
their thinking. Everything just sort of felt ruined. I've made too many mistakes. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you said, okay, I, I think I'm saved. I will take that. I hear that preached and sung. I, 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 I guess I'm saved, but my life's effectiveness is over. This is the way they felt. So God sent the prophet Zechariah because they were so discouraged they needed to be shocked. And so God shocks them through Zechariah's preaching, which is primarily made up of visions. Dean uh, and the sound crew would love the visions of Zechariah because they're audio-visual spectacles. It's like Zechariah got to order all the AVL equipment he wanted in order to display the magnificence of God in an unusual way. And Zechariah had eight visions, and today we're going to look at vision number four. Zechariah 3.3, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. In order to grasp the, the full impact of this verse, you, you sort of need to understand the, the function, the role of a high priest in ancient Israel. He would wear an ephod, and on that would be like a one-by-one breastplate, a sort of a, a piece of cloth that had 12 jewels, precious gems attached to it, and each one of them had the name of one of the tribes of Israel on the gem. So he literally represented the people. Whenever he would go into the temple, it's symbolically the people were going into the temple or the tabernacle with him. So it, it was a wonderful, uh, it's a very positive thing. These people were literally on his heart. But remember what we read about this priest. He was wearing at the lower part of the screen, he was wearing filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So what did we just say? The priest represents the people, therefore his filthy clothes represent the filthy condition of the people. I'm not talking about something that's been drugged uh, left outside and is dirty and drugged through the mud. We're talking about the word filth and the Hebrew language is used for human excrement. Is all over this man's, the priest, robe. So through this vision, Zechariah is able to see that sin has caused the nation, all of the nation, to look filthy. Who do you think loves this picture? Well, Satan, middle of the verse, and Satan is standing at his right side to do what Satan loves to do. Really, the only thing Satan does to do outside of tempting us, which is minor and compared to this, is accuse us. The role of Satan is to deprive the believer, to deprive everyone in this room of the joy that God intended for you to have when you were born by accusing you, accusing you for past failures, accusing you for present flaws. Remember how Satan is described even in the book of Revelation. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God 
day and night. The problem with Satan's accusations is they're all true. He never makes up anything because he's got to speak to God so God would clearly know if he was lying. He can lie to us, but he can't lie to God. So all the accusations that Satan throws against us in the face of God, the whole list that he reads is true. I mean, we know we are capable of behaving badly. And we know that God knows we have behaved badly. Satan never forgets. Satan never forgets anything we've ever said and done that was contrary to the will of God. And he attempts to make sure that our conscience never forgets. One scholar said the conscience is like a mother-in-law whose visit never ends. (laughs) People try to drown out the news reports that are coming from the conscience. They drown it out through concerts. They drown drown it out through a frenzied lifestyle of going. They, They drown it out through substances. But they can't drown out the voice of the conscience, which is recorded the truth. We can't stop thinking about all the evidence how we violated God's laws and how God's justice demands punishment. You love your conscience. I love my conscience. The conscience is a fine thing. Um, matter of fact, when you don't have one, we call you a sociopath. So the conscience is a very good thing because it, it reminds us that there is a living God who will judge all things correctly one day. The, the, the conscience is a spark of light in the middle of this darkened, fleshly body, the conscience is a glorious thing, but it is so limited because the only thing it can really do is make you feel bad. It has limitations. And that's the goal of Satan, to use your conscience to cripple you with guilt. I've met many Christians who feel so guilty that they truly believe they're not saved. And, and uh, it's amazing, the, 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 the timing of Satan's use of conscience, the strategic timing. How about this? You go to the doctor, you get a, you get a, a bad medical report, or you, you lose your job, and the first thing you think is, oh, my goodness, God is judging me. You interpret all things in life as God is judging you. Or you go try to be a witness for Christ. You want to speak for Christ. You want to witness for him. You're trying to be bold. And then all of a sudden, your condemning conscience, influenced by the fuel of Satan, tells you, you have no right to witness because of what you did yesterday. And so then you, you obey that accuser and you shut your mouth. Or have you ever tried to pray and you close your eyes and all you can think about is the things you've done in your life and you get so discouraged and you stop praying? Your conscience will tell you if you were a real Christian, you wouldn't experience these kinds of temptations. How about this? How about for people in my position who often receive compliments by your kindness and right when the compliments come, the accuser says if they really knew who you were. If they really knew who you were. So what can we do about an accusing Satan and a condemning conscience? The answer is in this vision in Zechariah chapter 3. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, Joshua the priest, a burning stick snatched from the fire? So what you have here is sort of a beautiful addition to what we're what we're ha- what, what the the, uh, the courtroom scene that is becoming more and more crowded in Joshua chapter three. We have a guilty priest. We have an angry and accusing um, attorney, and we have a judge who is called God. And it looks like we have no pr- right to be in the presence of God. And then all of a sudden we learn that that's not, that's not right. Instead, we hear the Lord rebuke Satan for accusing his people. Now, when, you're, when you see this rebuke, you need to understand this rebuke has nothing to do with anything that the Lord sees in us. The rebuking of Satan has to do that we are chosen by God. He rebukes Satan based on his predetermined choice to get us out of trouble. Look at the way that Joshua is described here. Is this man, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? I would personally love that to be a description of my life. I'm a burning stick that was snatched from the fire of God. Now, this, uh, you know, everything's in context, so it first has to refer to Jerusalem, that there were a group of people when the Babylonian army came and burned down the city and many people were killed, there were a group of people who were not killed. So they would be the burning stick. They would be the people that were saved from the Babylonian destruction. They were sent off to exile and now they are their return. But I think the burning stick, because of what we know in the New Testament, is a reference to those who have been saved from hell. Jesus Christ spoke about hell many times. Mark 9, 43, he refers to it as a place where the fire never goes out. Revelation 20, 10 through 15 talks about the lake of fire where Satan and the false prophet and the beast and all unbelievers will be thrown forever and ever. And don't you love the call to evangelism in the book of Jude? Verse 23, we are to save others by snatching them from the fire. So I I guess we would say the first piece of salvation given to us, given to encourage us in in Zechariah chapter 3 is that we are a people chosen by God and we have been saved from fiery judgment. That's the the first component of salvation, but it's so much more than being saved from fire. Zechariah 3, verse, let's just get some momentum going. The Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who's chosen Jerusalem, a burning stick snatched from the fire. But more than that, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin And I will put fine garments on you. Now, I want to say something interesting because somebody's going to ask me later, and I want to 
just sort of beat you to the punch. There are several times in the prophets, well, throughout all of the Old Testament, where you'll see the word, the angel, and a lot of times you'll read it as the angel of the Lord, and people want to know, who is that? Is that just like an angel that's got a bunch of promotions? Or let me just tell you this. There's a lot of scholars that identify the angel of the Lord as the second member of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, before he came to earth. And there's great evidence for pointing in that direction. Here's your clue. Whenever the angel of the Lord talks in a way that looks like the Lord is talking, <laughs> whenever the angel of the Lord talks in a way that looks like the Lord is talking, that's fair to probably assume the angel of the Lord in that case is the second member of the Godhead, the eternal word who became flesh in the New Testament, Jesus Christ. So now in our courtroom, we have a guilty, or you know, we have a priest, uh, we have an accusing uh, prosecutor, uh, we have God the judge, and now we have this angel of the Lord speaking grace to us about a new set of clothes that's going to provide us with a clean start. Now, I think that's Jesus Christ. If it's not Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter because he sure points to Jesus Christ as you turn to the New Testament. 1 John 2.1, this is again a courtroom scene. Here we have a defense attorney, an advocate speaking on your behalf, just like we saw in Zechariah 3. 1 John 2, 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you'll not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, a defense attorney, somebody to speak for us, speaks for us with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. So here we see a clearer picture of what the angel of the Lord is doing in Zechariah 3. He is speaking, asking, explaining why God should release us from Satan's accusations. And again, it has nothing to do with anything that we have done. He is the, third line down, the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. So here's how the speech would go with Jesus Christ or the angel of the Lord from Zechariah. O judge of heaven, Richard is guilty, and your law demands that a penalty be issued. Your law demands that the penalty is death. Absolutely right. But look at the scars in my hands and my feet. Look at the scars on my back. These scars came when I was beaten and nailed to a cross as payment for his sins. You are right to demand justice, O Father, and my suffering on the cross has provided that justice. We receive mercy from God only because Christ accomplished justice. Jesus Christ does not ask for mercy. He reminds the Father that justice has been done, and then the Father can give mercy. 
I mean, Jesus is not just saying, hey, Rich is a good guy. He's nice to people and paints every room in his house that his wife asked him to at the last minute on Saturday. <laughs> Sorry, dealing, dealing with some stuff here. <laughs> and you need to remember that when you think about this advocate, this defense attorney, this high priest Joshua in the Old Testament, remember that Jesus Christ in the New Testament is also called what? Our great high priest. So now, how about this particular scene? You, you, you go back to Zechariah chapter 3, and you look at Joshua the high priest who's covered in filth, dirt, mud, excrement, covered in it, and you come to the New Testament where the Bible says that Jesus Christ is our high priest and you get an unbelievable picture of what Jesus has done for us. He absorbed all of that filth into his body so that that filth might leave our body and be nailed to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin. For us that we might become the righteousness of God. So you have two things going on in the courtroom. We've been snatched from the fire. Our old dirty clothes have been removed and placed on Christ. Who died for them on the cross. But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is not just being snatched from the fire and having our guilt removed, but salvation means that we are now dressed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. The angel said, take off his filthy clothes. We got that. Then I said, now Zechariah is talking now. Zechariah is getting involved because he says, wow, this is, if this is here for the getting, then give him that too. Put a clean turban on his head. Now, this is on the head of the priest. This represents us. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord, that's my interpretation would be Jesus, second member of the Trinity, stood by. So we've been snatched from the fire, old clothing gone, and the, one, the most wonderful thing about being saved is all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus had to earn that. All of the righteousness that Jesus Christ earned through his obedient life, Every temptation, he said no to the temptation, yes to God. All of his righteous decisions are credited in our account so that we receive the cleanliness that only belongs or should belong to Jesus Christ. So that's three components of salvation. Snatched from the fire, old clothes gone, and righteousness of Christ put into our account. Now our conscience, if you're not going to go that way, you're not going to go the Christ way, then your conscience is going to tell you every time you do something wrong that you've got to make up for it. And many, many people, maybe some of you, are living in that, that hellish cycle today. You're trying to do something to make up for yesterday, last week, or last year. You're like a person who cleans the house before the maid comes. It didn't work that way with the gospel. You invite Jesus Christ into the dirty house, the dirty life, and 
He takes away the guilt. He takes away the condemnation, and he gives you his perfect record into your life. I want to share a quote with you by Ed Welch, because some of you really need to know this today. Um, He calls it biblical arithmetic. In other words, I'm not going to deny the fact that all of us can remember something in our past that we don't like. And I'm not going to try to ever convince you that you can get that out of your head. But here, I love what Ed Welch says. Biblical arithmetic is this. For every one look at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. You want to live in freedom, you start living by that. Yeah, I have sinned, but Christ died, Christ died, Christ died, Christ died. His clothes are given to me. My guilt is gone. I'm snatched from the fire. You say that ten times, and don't say that you have failed ten times. God never expects you to hear any command from God without looking at what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and in his perfect life. But somebody may ask, well, does this discount obedience altogether? Does my obedience not matter to God? It matters a great deal, and Zechariah reminds us of that. The angel of the Lord, Zechariah 3.6, gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge over my courts, and I will give you a place among those standing there. So what's he talking about? Holiness leads to influence. Obedience leads to impact. Uh, People ask me all the time, can I lose my salvation? No, but you can lose your influence. And then then you just got ridiculous humans say, well, that's okay as long as I'm going to heaven. Well, that's just terrible. Because then you begin to influence many, many people that are in your circle to simply live for going to heaven but be terrible witnesses for Christ on earth, and that turns the world off like nothing else. You will influence people away from Christ because they'll see that it's doing nothing in your life. Let's look at what else the Lord tells this high priest, Joshua. By the way, the Old Testament name Joshua is the New Testament name Jesus. I love that. The Old Testament name Joshua, when translated into Greek, uh, is the New Testament. Yeshua is Jesus in the New Testament. Joshua to Jesus. Zechariah 3 8. Listen, high priest Joshua. He's basically about to tell me that this, is, this little vision is bigger than you think. You and your associates seated before you, y'all are a mirror. Uh, y'all who are men are symbolic of things to come. Now, I love this because this verse lets me know that I had every right to take you to the New Testament. I didn't just choose to say this is fulfilled in the New Testament. It said, this is what it says. It look, for the, look for the answer in the future. And then he tells them what that future is. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone, 
and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord. Now, I'm going to wager a bet here. Monopoly money, not real money. I'm going to wager a bet here that says the word branch doesn't mean a lot to you. It's pretty obscure, uh, but it's glorious. Um, It's an Old Testament way of saying Messiah or Savior. And the reason we know that is, I've told you before, the prophets love to learn from each other and take from each other's writings, just as I took from Ed Welch's writings for this morning's sermon. It's a good thing to do to read other people, or you'll be a boring speaker. So, Zechariah read something that Isaiah had written hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah 11.1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And Zechariah knew that this verse was messianic. This verse was talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of somebody from the family of Jesse. Again, let me explain that for anybody that's here for the first time. Jesse was the father of David, and David was Israel's greatest king. So this is simply saying that somebody named the branch is going to come out of the family of King David. Somebody named the branch. You say, well, why do they call him a branch? Because if you look at the picture here, this is a, a, a desert, and there's one stump you know, maybe two feet high, and you would say it's lifeless. You would say it's over, which is how Israel felt. And out of that stump comes a fast-growing, wide-reaching branch. Messiah, Jesus, coming out of the family of David, out of the nation of Israel, when you said there is no hope that Israel has any future, all of a sudden the branch comes out. So he says, listen, high priest, Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, you are still not reading it good. I'm going to slow down. Listen, high priest, Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men Symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. Keep going. See the stone I've set in front of Joshua. So you've got Joshua. You've got introduction of this new character called the branch, who I just said is Messiah, Savior, Old Testament promise of God's eternal ruler, branch. There are seven eyes on that one stone. So you have Joshua. The promise of the branch, you got a stone in front of Joshua, and on that stone is an inscription, and something is written, an inscription is written on that stone. I wonder where that stone says. Let's look at that next week. Just kidding. Take this, oh my goodness. Oh, no, there it is at the bottom. Y'all are going to the answer. And I'll grave on an inscription that says, Lord Almighty, and this is, what's in, it's, this is what is engraved on the stone that speaks about what the branch will do, the stone that's sitting in front of Joshua. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And amen goes right there. Wow. 
God says, through the branch, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. How is it that one man named the branch can remove the sin of an entire nation, centuries of sin of an entire nation, in one day? I just can't go home without explaining that to you. I, I got right here. It said, if you're out of time, stop here. I'm not going to stop here. <clears throat> in chapter 6, we were introduced again to the branch. Take the silver and the gold, Zechariah 6, 11. Take the silver and the gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua. Tell him, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the branch. This is Messiah. And he will branch out from his place. See that little root or that little root growing off of that stump. He'd branch out and he will build the temple of the Lord and he will be a priest on his throne and there will be harmony between the two. Please give me 100% of your little brain power. Please. So now you've got this branch. We're told in Isaiah 11, he's the Messiah. He's coming from the kingly family of David. But here we're told something else about this branch. He, in one and the same person, is a priest and a king. Those two categories have never been mixed in all of Scripture. You were either a priest like Joshua or you were a king like the branch, but there has never been a mixing where the king was the branch and the priest was the king. No one except this man. And we were told in the previous verse that this man, this branch, priest, king, is going to be one who takes away the sin of the land in a single day. So he's a very important person. There's only one person who can be that important. There's only one person who's worthy to be king of the universe and priest of the world. God. This has got to be talking about God. Who is worthy to be king and priest? God. Why is that so significant? Because God comes to town in Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king. See, if we move from priest to king now, they're one and the same people. But now it's king talk. Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Anybody ever seen that verse? That's New Testament. This is how Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem in the last week of his life. And the biblical writers knew that it was coming from Zechariah that this God, King, Priest was Jesus. So now you have God the King, God the Priest, Jesus the Messiah, the branch, Riding on a donkey. And what do you think Jerusalem did to their king, priest, Messiah, branch? 
They murdered him. It's the last of their great sins. They had done a bunch of bad ones. This was a real bad one. You get your king, priest, branch, Messiah coming to visit. And you nail him to a cross. You spit on him and you mock him. That's what they did. But look what happened when they did it. Zechariah 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. The reference at the bottom would be a child that didn't make it. That's just, you just can read that into it. It's the, it's the mourning associated with death. And it says there's going to come a time when Israel will weep and let me just ask you this. You want a good apologetic for Jews? Can you think, a good apologetic to help the Jewish people consider the claims of Christianity? This is their Bible. And their Bible says there was a time when God was pierced. Can you name any time in the Old Testament God was pierced? This is Jewish Bible. This is Old Testament. No, there was not a time in the Old Testament when God was pierced. There was a time in the New Testament when God was pierced. When Jerusalem nailed Jesus Christ, the branch, the Messiah, Joshua, the priest, to a cross. But look what Israel is doing here. This is beautiful. They're mourning, they're crying. They're weeping for the one they pierced. Well, when did that happen? Go home today and read Acts chapter 2. Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, preached the first sermon in Jerusalem 50 days after Christ was crucified and risen from the dead. And the Bible says when Peter preached his message in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that 3,000 Jews started weeping. And they cried out, what must we do to be saved? And they knew they had pierced to their God. They knew they had pierced their king. And what happened in Jerusalem that day? Zechariah tells us. You don't have to guess. Zechariah 13.1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. When they pierced their God in Jerusalem, when they pierced the branch and nailed him to a cross, his blood flowed out and cleansed all those who believed from the Jewish nation. And that's why Zechariah can end in chapter 14 with this promise. Jerusalem shall be inhabited, for there shall be no more curse. Someone asked me at the end of last week's sermon about my position on Israel. Was Israel, will Israel be saved? And Revelate, I mean, Romans chapter 11 says they will, but only after they mourn for the piercing of Jesus Christ, who is God. And when they mourn, all of the blood that came out of the veins of Jesus Christ will cleanse them from the animal sacrifices that could, I mean, from the sins that could never be cleansed by animal sacrifice. There is a fountain that's coming and falling on Israel now, even as we speak, among the turning of many Messianic Jews to Christ 
believing that it was God who was crucified in Jerusalem for the sins of the world. Would you place your faith in the pierced God today for the forgiveness of your sins and the removal of all of Satan's accusations? Let's pray. Father, we look to you ten times now. We look to Jesus ten times. We look to the beautiful life of Jesus, his touch to those who were diseased, his welcoming to those who were dirty, his calling of the disciples who were not qualified, and all the miracles where he fed hungry people. And the times that he wept over the sorrow that people were experiencing. We look to Jesus ten times now. And we say, yes, we've sinned. But the blood of Christ, the blood of the branch, the blood of our king has been spilled. A new fountain has been opened. And we bathe in that fountain. We take all of our sins to that fountain. We don't hide anything from you, O oh God. We just pour it all on the fountain. And we swim and splash in the fountain of your grace and say, cleanse us because the branch has been pierced. The king came riding on a donkey, was nailed to a cross, rose from a tomb. And now Joshua, our high priest, Jesus, Yeshua, Jesus, is at the right hand of God with scars in his hand and scars on his back, able to argue that justice has been accomplished and no accusation of Satan can ever stick because our sins have been paid for and we are free. Thank you, Jesus. Bring somebody to know you today. In Christ's name, amen.